This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Say it with me, fight. Come on, say it louder, fight. We're going to win from within. Turn to somebody and say, win from within. Man, we've been talking about uh, this battle from Galatians chapter 5 that Paul shows us. There is a fight. There is a battle. We have to win from within. And we've been looking at some topics. First of all, and I'm going to read it just uh, to help us uh, get started with the scripture from Galatians. But Paul's going to say that there is this fight. There is this battle with carnality, with the flesh. And, and you're fighting against the works of The flesh. And we have to learn how to win this fight from within. That led us to looking at the issue of idolatry. We called it God replacements. What are some things in our life that replaces the place that God wants? Where God wants to sit on the throne of our heart, we allow some of these things to take priority in our life. Then we went from there. See, we're talking about how to win from within. And if we're going to remove these things that are getting in our way, then the next thing Paul says that we're going to have to learn how to do is to win the battle of purity. Say purity. And we said that if you're going to win this battle, you're feeding your spirit. The spirit man's got to become stronger if you're going to win from within. So you've got to begin to remove the, the things that are taking priority in your life that are not God-related and God's purposes and will for you. The purity in our life has got to be aligned with God's will. Impurity has got to be purged. And we got to walk a life of purity and righteousness. Because when we do, we're getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we're staying pure. If we're going to win from within, there's going to be a fight for unity as the body of Christ. And what we don't realize is that is as great of a battle as the battle for your purity and the battle of of who's going to lead and guide your life and what's going to be the priorities of your life. And that is a battle for unity, that we love one another. And we've been unpacking what does that look like. And Paul now is going to bring us to another deep, deep topic. Now, I'm so proud of you as we get started. The reason I'm proud of you is because, man, we're learning how to walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit, which means that we're having to go really deep into our heart, and we're allowing the Spirit to do some molding of our heart. We're allowing Him to show us and reveal to us what is the battle, what is the fight that we've got to win from within. And today is another one. It's a deceitful one. It's one that we don't often think about or realize but it impacts all of us. Father, as we open your word today, we know that your word is anointed. And Lord, I I just ask that, Father, there will be illumination today to our hearts, to our lives, that the word of God will come alive. Just say that, Holy Spirit, awaken my life. Illuminate your word. Enlighten me with revelation from above. Lord, I know your word's anointed, and I pray that my words today will come in alignment with your purpose 
in your will. And all God's people would say with me, amen. Amen. Our key passage is found in Galatians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn over there and look with me uh, into Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, we've been reading it every week because our whole series, our devotional in this whole series is written off of this passage. Galatians 5.16, Living Translation. So I say, Paul's writing, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Now we've been talking about to let the Holy Spirit guide our lives means that there's some deconstruction and there's some things that we have to battle. He says, if you let the Holy Spirit guide your life, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Verse 19, he goes on. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality impurity, lustful pleasures. We talked about this. We talked about the fight for our purity, idolatry, sorcery. We talked about God replacements. We talked about this issue of allowing things to take priority. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissensions and division, right? We talked about this last week the fight for unity. And then he says, selfish ambition. Today we're going to talk about selfish ambition. Now, a warning to all of us is that this is a passage of Scripture. In fact, when we look at it in Scripture, we're going to see that it's dealt with multiple, multiple times. Selfish ambition is something that's very difficult to understand. There is a difference between godly pursuit and selfish ambition. I was texting last night with uh, one, of the, one, of, uh, one of our leaders of the Assemblies of God in another nation. He's been following our sermon series. And I said, this message today is a message for all Christian workers, but it goes beyond Christian workers. It goes to all believers. And that is there is a fight, and that fight is against selfish or vain glory and selfish ambition. And yet, to discover what is the difference between that and godly pursuit. Paul says it this way over in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is the writer, the writer of, of Galatians, but to the church of Philippi, he says, do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition or vain conceit. So to win this battle, we've got to understand this. Now, let me start by saying, first of all, ambition in and of itself is not wrong. Having goals, having a purpose, having meaning in life, and striving for accomplishments is what uh, enables us to wake up in the morning and have purpose and, and meaning to our life. 
The challenge is when we move out of godly pursuits and that which God has given to us for godly ambitions or pursuits in our life, and it becomes a selfish ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. A definition of ambition is that you and I earnestly desire some type of achievement or distinction. That's not necessarily wrong. It's what gets us up in the morning. Ambition is this desire to do something or to achieve something. Typically, it will require determination and hard work, and those are good qualities, amen? We want to teach our children that. We want our younger generation to understand that, especially in an age of entitlement. We want to understand, we want them to understand that determination and hard work are good character qualities. To desire, to determine that we're going to move forward, we're going to better ourselves, and we're going to move towards godly pursuits is what I want to help us to understand. So, so ambition is a desire that is not necessarily wrong. If you don't have ambition, then you would have no reason to get up in the morning, no reason to go to school, no reason to study or invent. Last week, my wife and I had a chance to, to go to... Uh, to uh, to a museum up in New England. We were up there for a few days, and, and it was the Hammond Museum. And this guy invented, had over 450 patents. I mean, invented radio, radio waves and microwaves and the blender. And I mean, I walked through and I thought, man, this guy was brilliant. And there was ambition that was there. I don't know him, so I don't know if it was selfish ambition. But these are good qualities if we harness them in the right way. Paul talks about ambition in the scripture. Ten times Paul will talk about it. Seven times it's godly ambition. Paul would say, I, 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 I'm ambitious to preach the gospel, to further the kingdom of God, to advance the name of Jesus, to make the name of Jesus known, to make his name great. Those are good godly ambitions. Could we agree on that today? Paul understood. He understood his gifts. He understood talent. He understood education. But he also understood that life was not about him, but it was about the kingdom of God. God changed and transformed his life on the road. And on that road to Damascus, God awakened him and God illuminated to him and showed him that there was another way and it was God's way, not only his way. Life is not about me, it's not about us, but it's got to be all about him. And we learn that in that, God leads us to pursue his purposes in our life. But three of the ten times Paul talks about ambition, it deals with selfish ambition. Now the difficulty is that ambition is very deceitful. There is a deceitfulness about ambition because it can turn into selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, if we don't understand it, is that there is a motivation that elevates myself or puts oneself above the interests of everybody else around. To have more power, more honor, to have more fame, more wealth, to, to, to have more and more and more and never be content. Selfish ambition keeps driving and driving and driving to get more and more and more to the point that it doesn't make sense. 
Godly pursuit, maybe I can call it your destiny, godly, uh, godly pursuit in God's will and purpose, it draws you. It draws you towards God's purposes, towards God's will, to advancing the kingdom of God. You may get more wealth, but you begin to realize there's a purpose behind my wealth, and it's to advance the kingdom of God for the purposes of God. It draws you. Selfish ambition drives you where destiny and godly pursuits draw you. But the deceitfulness here is that it's very hard to distinguish sometimes between the two. The deceitfulness of self-seeking and self-serving and looking out for my own interests above the interests of anybody else around me is where I begin to step out of a godly pursuit and the deceitfulness begins to bring me down a road where pride is driving me. Destiny is no longer pursuing me or pushing me or drawing me, but now pride is what's drawing me, and that drive towards pride is about doing my own thing. It's about me, and I'm never content with where I'm at. In fact, what happens if we don't check it and realize it is self becomes the center of our own uh, universe and the horizon of fulfillment is always moving and we can never attain it. And I'm going to tell you today it's a battle within that if we're going to be led by the Spirit, we've got to learn to recognize selfish ambition, crucify it on the altar of Christ, and allow God's pursuits and God's will to be what drives our life. Now, I know that this is a message we don't hear much. I know it's not just bless me, Lord, because when we're there, we get excited. But the reality is selfish ambition can be so deceitful and so dangerous. You see it, you recognize it, you hear it when individuals are beginning to brag about their accomplishments. When you begin to see an individual that wants to be known, better known, better known in their company, among their friends, whatever it may be, they're, they're promoting, self-promoting themselves, taking the credit, wanting to be that guy, that person, that one that everybody looks to, trying to expand their personal influence or prominence so others would look to them. How many followers can they get? What is it that drives them? I mean, it's deceitful. For young people today, for those that are coming up, it's even more drawing and it's, and it's even more deceitful because their world is wrapped around these issues that I'm de dealing with right now. It's the comparison to be the very best and to get ahead of everybody else. And it leads to pride and, and it leads to a place of thinking that we are the one that's achieved it, that, that we are entitled to the success because of our accomplishments. And there's this struggle then inwardly that, that begins to arise. It's called insecurity because selfish ambition begins to push you and drive you to where your character cannot sustain you. And there's an insecurity that will arise up pushing, it's driving, it's never content. What I learned a long time ago is that spiritual maturity is totally different and that's why godly pursuit is, is something that we must understand because a godly pursuit has spiritual maturity within it and that is I'm others focused, not self-focused. 
Spiritual maturity has me looking to the needs of of what others need, not just what I need or what I desire. And, And in that, spiritual maturity is learning to surrender, learning to trust, learning to depend, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening in the workplace or in family or situations in my life, I depend on God, I trust God, I know that God is in control, God's will and God's purposes will prevail if I will surrender my life to him. But left unchecked, left unsurrendered, my selfish ambition will drive me and the servant of God finds themselves all of a sudden becoming a servant of themselves and that's why it is so deceitful. We see it in scripture. Turn with me to Mark chapter Mark chapter 10. We see in Mark chapter 10 an example of it rising up. Jesus, to give you the context here, is at the end of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem with the disciples. It's the last time he will be going to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beat and spat upon and mocked and put to death and crucified there in Jerusalem. So as he's on his way, he's trying to let the disciples know what is going to take place when they get there. Now, you got to remember at this time, Jesus is doing many miracles and, and he's at the height of his, of his ministry. In fact, if you remember, when they come marching in to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, his last entry into Jerusalem, they're cheering and they're shouting and they're celebrating. I mean, let's talk about that for a moment. The disciples were pretty, pretty popular at that time. If you couldn't get to Jesus, you'd get to a disciple. And this was his team. I mean, they were moving and shaking. Things were happening. And here they are. They're going into Jerusalem. And Mark chapter 10 picks up the story in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over to Jesus and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do a favor for us. What is it you request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your throne, when you come into your kingdom, you know, they weren't listening to what Jesus was saying as they were walking on that road. I mean, here Jesus is saying, I'm gonna suffer. I'm going to die. This is my destiny. This is what's before me. And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's all good. That being arrested part, that being beat part, that that being spat upon and mocked and put to death. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you become the king, when you get to that place of authority, they didn't realize that all authority had already been given to him. They didn't catch that. But here they're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Do a favor for us, Jesus. When you get to your throne, when you become the king, when you've got all power and all authority and you're in that place, we're your people, we're your, we're your guys, we're your team. We want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on our right, one on the left. That's where we want to be. So they're secretly pulling Jesus off to the side. And they're saying, will you do a favor for us? We want to be in positions of honor. 
Now you see the ambition that's beginning to rise up. In another book of the Bible here, in another gospel, I should say, about the same story, in Luke chapter 9, it says that the disciples, right about this time, begin to argue about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Why did James and John think, why did they think that they deserved these places and positions of honor? Why do we sometimes think that we deserve this favoritism? Why do we think that we have the right to have it? This sense of pride that begins to rise up. Maybe it's because they thought that they earned it. Maybe it's because we think that we've earned it. We've achieved it. We've done this. We've accomplished it. And therefore, this position of favoritism. For James and John, it's believed that they were very wealthy. Their father was wealthy. They owned a large fishing business that would actually provide fish for the palace. And so here are are two young men that grew up. Maybe they were pampered. Maybe they were, you know, uh, uh, young men that had everything that they wanted. And so maybe they were dealing with this attitude of entitlement and that their wealth made them feel like they deserved these positions and they became more self-centered and more selfish because that's what wealth often does is it makes us look at what we have thinking that we need more, we deserve more, we've got to have more regardless of what's happening to anybody else around. And it drives us. Maybe their motive was just more power, position, and influence. Maybe it was this that they wanted the authority, but they said, Jesus, do me a favor. Do us a favor. We want to be in these positions of honor. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. I'm going to come back to that. Are you able To drink the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized by the baptism of suffering? See, you don't know what you're asking. Destiny draws you into the purpose of God, but in that draw, there's a preparation, there's a fortitude. Your character's being developed. You're being prepared for where God is calling you. Selfish ambition pushes you somewhere that many are not prepared for and they're not ready for and their character can't keep them there. Oh, they've told themselves, I deserve it. They've told themselves, I've earned it. They've told themselves, I should be here. But they can't handle what's about to come. There's a suffering that's about to take place that they can't handle in those moments. And Jesus said, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able? Are you prepared? Are you ready to take on what I'm about to take on? Are you ready to take on the suffering that I must do. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, they replied. I'd be going, ah. okay, let's go back to that. What You're going to be what? You're going to be arrested. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be crucified. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't know. Give me strength because I don't know if I can handle it. But not them. They say, oh, yes, 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 yes. You see the selfish ambition rising up. Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. You're going to get what you're asking for. And you're going to be baptized with the baptism of my suffering. It's going to happen. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right. Don't miss this point right here. I have no right 
to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared these places for the ones he has chosen. See, what I want you to understand is it's God that chooses. It's God that when we're pursuing God and we're walking after the will and the purpose of God, when our destiny and God's purpose and godly ambitions of God, we want you to be exalted and your kingdom to be magnified. When we're pursuing that, it's God that places us in those positions. The struggle to get to a place that God has not destined you for will mean that you will have to fight to stay in that place that God had not destined for you to be. Sometimes we're driving to get to a place that spiritually we don't have the fortitude to be there. We don't have the spiritual life. We don't have the disciplines. We don't have the faith. We don't even have a marriage that can stand up underneath it. We can't stay where we are driving to be if we're not prepared for where God is calling us to be. I've watched it in my ministry time and time again that they're driving and they're driving. If it's in my realm, it's in ministry and they're allowing all of this to happen and they don't have the depth to stay there because they've not been prepared for there and maybe God called them for it, but they didn't walk a road that kept them humble and kept them in a place that God could say, this is my servant and my anointing is upon them. There is a spiritual warfare. Jesus said it's going to come. And when you get to certain places because you've driven to be there, let me tell you, the higher you go in your life, in ministry and influence, the greater the spiritual warfare is going to be there. And if you've not prepared for that spiritual warfare, you won't make it in the moment when the enemy begins to attack. Man, I've watched men in ministry selfishly pursue things and they get somewhere and then all of a sudden they get into a place where some woman throws herself at them and before you know it, they've given in and they've given up everything in ministry, in marriage, and in family. And let me tell you, God will not be mocked. He'll let it come up. He'll show it and reveal it. I'm telling you, there's a spiritual warfare. There's bitter bitter suffering that comes when you begin to move into the mission of what God has. It's not something that we're afraid of. It's something we rejoice in because God gives us strength to stand up under it and we've pursued him. And when we're standing with him, all of a sudden God's weight begins to come upon us that helps us then to undergird us when the enemy begins to to attack us. I'm telling you, this is a revelation for somebody today. There's a difference between selfish ambition and godly pursuit. We were young missionaries. 27 years old, honey. When we picked up our our lives, we had one son, three years old. And we moved to the country of Hungary. Hungary had just come through communism, 54 years of communistic control. You talk about spiritual warfare. And it was in those years that the church was beginning to emerge. When we first arrived in Hungary, they only had seven pastors, seven in the whole nation that were ordained. 
Why is for 54 years you couldn't preach publicly? You could, you could meet in rooms. You couldn't evangelize. There was no Bible schools. There was no material. There was no internet. There was none of that. Communism thought that they could crunch and squash out the gospel. <laughs> God called us as young missionaries. We were the second missionary couple to go in. I remember coming into Hungary. And man, <laughs> communists had left, but the mentality was still there. They had their AK-47s. I mean, they, the way they stamped our passport, just, just the stamp alone frightened you. I mean, it just... Just this, this, this attitude. Three-year-old son, we have find ourselves in Hungary. But can I tell you, going to Hungary was not about, for us, my wife and I, it wasn't about what we were going to do in Hungary. It was what God was going to do in me. You see, I'd come through at a time where going to Bible school and seminary was not what Pentecostals would do. I'd come from seminary and found myself being a military chaplain at the age of 23. Find myself leading a Christian school at the age of 24. Being ordained very young, just accelerating very quickly in ministry. And then feeling the call to go to Hungary. And in Hungary, God began... To make sure that my heart and my life and my ambitions were all rooted in his plan and in his purpose. It was there that God began to show me that we dismissed the crowds and we looked to the individuals. God will bring the crowds, but it wasn't about the crowds at that time. Because in Hungary, I had to learn the language a three-year-old that could talk had more respect than I had. I had the degrees. I had the accolades. I had all of those things behind me. But they couldn't understand me. And as long as they couldn't understand me, there was no influence. I remember coming home one night, getting a letter from a dear saint in one of our supporting churches. Tell me about all the miracles, all that God's doing, all the salvations, all the things that God is doing on the mission field. And as I read that, my heart broke because I had just come from the mechanic to get an oil change from the mechanic and I ended up paying because I didn't speak the language because he knew that I didn't understand what he was saying and what was happening. I knew that I had been taken advantage of and I paid a whole month's salary on things in my car they probably didn't even do. And there was nothing I could do. I went home and I said, I can't even speak to the mechanic. And you're asking me about all the souls that are being saved. It was a crushing time. It was a time of breaking in my life. But praise the Lord that in those times, God is rebuilding and he's doing. And all of us, any man or woman of God that will be used by God greatly will have desert experiences. They will have those moments where there's a breaking and there's a crushing because what God is wanting to resurrect is something for his glory and for his purpose because all of a sudden it's not now about what we think ministry is about when we're talking about ministry, but it's about what God wants in our life. To make the story short, my time is slipping. 
It was through that season that the Lord really shared with Candy and I the power of one. That we are one, and that as we are one, we're ministering with the power of one to those that God sends that it's not about the crowd, but it's about the individuals that God has placed within the congregation. So when Candy and I are around individuals, we try to be fully 100% engaged. We, we give our hearts and our lives. We, we've had a prayer that says, God, let us love the people. Help me to preach with anointing and give me vision. Give me passion with vision so that we can fulfill your purpose, oh God, to accomplish your will. And as we have pressed into that, we've said, God, let it be about you and not about us. I don't need the crowds, oh God, but I need to be in the center of your will see here the selfish ambition was rising up and I want you to hear what Jesus said is God chooses destiny draws you to the place that God is calling you but I want you to remember it's not about you it's about God and it's about what God wants to do through you he's preparing you he has a place for you he wants to use you there's a destiny that he has calling in in your life and he wants you to come into that as we go on in our story the other disciples saw that, 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 that James and John had gotten alone with Jesus. And as he, they saw that, when the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were angry. So Jesus calls them together and he says, You know that the rulers of the world lord it over their people. Now, rulers of the world are those that are in high positions. You see, you're asking about when I'm going to become the king and you want to sit on my right and my left. You guys think you're all that stuff right now. You're all popular right now. But listen, he says, when rulers of the world are in their position and they rule or they lord over the people, the officials flaunt their authority or their power over those that are under their leadership. But among you, it will be different. In other translations, he says, not so with you. With you as disciples of, of my kingdom, as I am leading you, you will not lord it over. You will not expect what the kings and the rulers and the authorities of this world expect. You will lead differently because you are my disciple and that's what I'm calling you to. Powerful. So among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slaves of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in my final moments, I'd like to share with you, what is the antidote then? If it's so deceitful, it's hard to understand, it's so easy to get it confused. What's the antidote of selfish ambition? And the antidote is humility. Now, humility is greatly misunderstood. 
it's not the shyness. I'm timid. I'm bashful. I, I'm weak. I, I lack confidence. That's what many think of. It's not that I'm, I'm very insecure. In fact, it's the, uh, if you're walking in humility, you're actually not uh, uh, insecure. You've got to be very secure because as you lead from that place, your humility doesn't mean that you lack courage, but your humility begins to show up in a way that others we're going to see get preference and others are given responsibility. And there's actually a very great self-confidence within you. You have a very high self-esteem when you're walking in humility. He says, among you, it's going to be different. The ambition of those rulers in the world, those that are not believers, is different than the way you are going to lead and the way you are going to live. Godly ambition is driving, but godly pursuit is drawing. And as you begin to understand that, you can begin to see the difference. So today, what I want to do... In the next few minutes, I want to just share with you, how do you grow in humility? How do you grow your humility? If the antidote to selfish ambition is humility, then we've got to learn how to develop it and grow it in our lives. Now, God says that God loves those that are humble. God saves the humble. He guides the humble. He has promises for the humble. Can I hear an amen? There's blessings and favor that come on those that are humble. God says that when you're humble, he will exalt you. He will honor you and he will exalt you. So I think this is very important. So in our final moments, write this down. How do you grow in your humility? Well, first of all, the first thing I believe is important in growing in humility is practicing giving preference to others. What Jesus was saying is it's not going to be this way for you. For you, you're going to be different. In, in the book of John, we see that, that Jesus showed what humility was when he came to that last supper and, and he came to that final moment and, 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 he, and, he, and he gets down and he's the one that begins to wash the disciples' feet and he begins to show humility by doing what was not his right or, or responsibility. All authority had been given to him and yet he was doing that which a servant would do. And I learned a long time ago to be a servant, to have a servant's heart I've got to learn that in my heart, and I know I have a servant's heart, when I get treated like a servant, when I get treated like, like, uh, like one that, that shouldn't be treated in a certain way, and it doesn't bother me. When I get treated like a servant, and it doesn't bother me, then I've got a servant's heart. So if I'm going to grow in humility, I've got to learn to give preference to others. I've got to allow others to go first. I've got to allow others to, 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 to get the credit. I've got to develop around others and, and let them begin to see that, that they are respected and honored, that there is a love that is sincere for them, that I'm not play acting or, or I'm not living with hypocrisy, but I'm truly, truly allowing others to be glorified or honored or exalted or getting the credit, and I give them the presence of going first. You know, uh, there's a saying that 
uh, in a symphony. There's many different chairs within the symphony, and there's first seat, second seat, third seat. Well, you know they say one of the hardest chairs to sit in in the symphony is the second chair. Everybody wants to be in the first chair, but the hardest instrument is the second fiddle. The hardest instrument is the backup instrument. And everybody wants to be at top. Everybody desires to be at the top. But when we understand what God is saying is that I want to respect and honor and esteem others. And I want to put others first above my own desires. When I begin to do that, I begin to grow in humility in my life. Can I read to you Philippians chapter 2? I read it a moment ago, but I want to read it to you this time from the Message Bible. And I just want you to hear this because it rings so good. Philippians 2 verse 3. Don't push your way to the front. Put yourself aside. Now this is so counterculture, right? And help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage, but forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourself the way that Jesus thought of himself. He was God, but he took on the status of a slave. The incredible humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges, but instead... He lived what? A selfish, obedient life. James chapter one, verse 19 says it this way. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. My encouragement to you is give preference to others. Selfish ambitions driving you to be ahead, but a godly pursuit is one that says, God, my life is focused on others. It's others focused. You're first, others second, me third. And as we begin to live like that, I guarantee you, you will be filled with the Spirit. A second principle of growing in humility is the practice of learning from other people. My question for you is, When was the last time you really were open to the success, uh, to the success, uh, I can't say it, suggestions of others, the criticism of others, the teachable heart and spirit that says, God, uh, I want to learn from everybody. I wonder, when was the last time? How many, uh, I'm going to call different cultures, how many Jamaicans are in the house? Any Jamaicans in the house? How many Haitians in the house? (laughs) Okay, now we're going to start getting louder, I know. Any from Trinidad? Any Trinidad? All two of you? Trinidad, three of you? Anybody from the Philippines in here? Our Coral Springs campus has about 30 Filipinos over there. Okay, what country didn't I call? America. How many from America? (laughs) Woo! Colombia, Peru, Bogota, England. Yeah, we got some from England. (laughs) From New York, (laughs) New Jersey. (laughs) Now, Pastor, why are you calling out all our nations? Well, 
One thing I've learned with working with internationals and people from around the world for now over 20, uh, 20 almost 23 years now, and we've been missionaries and, 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 and worked with people from around the world in Austria and in the last 10 years here, the one thing that I've learned is all of our different cultures, there is so much to learn from one another. I mean, if you're a Haitian, I encourage you, go out to dinner one time with a Filipino. Seriously, we've got some from Europe that are in our congregation. If you're a Haitian, go out to dinner sometime. Invite somebody over to your house that's of another culture. Elena's ready, right? She, she's ready. You're looking for someone to invite. She said, I'm ready. Maybe, maybe it's even a Jamaican and a Haitian going out to dinner one time. What I learned is... There is so much that we can learn from one another. Man, when I'm with a Filipino, or I'm with a European, or I'm with a Haitian, or a Jamaican, or someone from England, I mean, I learned a long time ago that every country, every culture has its strengths and its weaknesses. And there is so much that we can learn from one another. If we think that we know it all in life, if we think that we've got all the answers, then let me tell you, selfish ambition will begin to drive you. But when you begin to understand there is so much for me to learn from other people, you begin to put yourself in a posture where now you're going to grow in your humility. Look at Proverbs 15, verse 12 says, Conceited people do not like to be corrected, and they never ask for advice. When was the last time you asked for advice? When was the last time you sought feedback? Proverbs said, Conceited people do not like to be corrected, and they never ask for advice. Proverbs 15, a few verses later in verse 32, if you reject criticism, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. In Matthew 18, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, Jesus said, is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Practice learning from others. The third thing that I've learned that grows our humility, and humility is the antidote of selfish ambition, is that we've got to practice admitting when we are wrong. We all make mistakes. So I ask you again with a different question, when was the last time you said, I was wrong? I sat there last night and I thought, Lord, help us. Selfish ambition makes us think we're never wrong. Selfish ambition makes everybody around us feel like we're, we're, we're dominating and we're, we're determined and it's driving us and we're never wrong. But when we walk in humility and humility is the antidote of selfish ambition, there is something that begins to say, as I'm learning from others, as I'm giving preference to others, there comes a place that I realize that there are times that I've made a mistake, I've had a wrong perception, I've had a wrong thought, I've misjudged someone's motives or actions, and in those times, I've got to learn to admit when I'm wrong. Many times we'll say, I'm sorry, but... 
If you had only, if you had, if you went, and we try to throw it back. Well, when you do that, you're not really admitting your mistake. You're making an excuse from it by hiding it in a, I'm sorry, and we begin to make excuses. Proverbs 28, verse 13, a man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. I love what James says, James 5, 16. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. Man, when you are doing that, let me tell you, you and I are growing together and you will overcome hurt, you will overcome offense, you will not be in a place where now your selfish ambitions are beginning to drive you, but you are living in that place of humility and that's where I want to be. And the last thing I would say to us, musicians, I know you're probably back there, go ahead and begin to play for me. The last thing... I would leave us with today is that we've got to practice surrendering our plans to God. We usually make plans without consulting God. And we're asking God to bless our plans. It's pursuing and driving what we want and trying to convince God that he would bless it and that his favor and hand and blessing would be upon it instead of asking God, what is your will? What is your plan? And that it's being something that's being filtered through the humility of your life. And as you stand in that place of saying, God, I want your will to be done, your destiny and God's will begins to draw you. Look here at this next scripture, uh, uh, if you would, in James chapter 4 and verse 6. Let me just finish with these scriptures. James 4, 6 says, God opposes everyone who is proud, but he gives what? Grace. Grace is favor and blessing. He gives grace, favor, and blessing to everyone who is humble. So if you want God's blessing, he is saying the answer is humility in your life. And the next statement, James says, is so surrender to God. When you surrender to God, what does that mean? That you're trusting God for your strength. You're trusting God for wisdom and, and, and perseverance and patience in your life. When you do that, he is saying there will be grace that will be given to you. Favor and blessing will be given. Romans 6, 13, give yourselves to God and surrender your whole being. What is that? I'm learning to trust him and depend on him and I'm walking in obedience to him and I'm learning to develop a servant's heart. I'm learning to develop a heart of compassion and kindness and meekness and long-suffering. When I do that, when I surrender my whole being to him, I will be used for his righteous purposes. Growing in humility. Today, I know that this is a message that maybe we haven't heard or thought about, but go all the way back to Galatians chapter 5. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, we've got a battle that's within. And the battle is being led by the Spirit or being led by the works of the flesh. 
And here, one of the items of the works of the flesh is selfish ambition. So, Father, our prayer today is that, Lord, you would identify, you would reveal that, God, you would begin to help us to see that, God, where we are driving towards things that are not of your will and your purpose in our life, that, God, you would begin to reveal it to us. I pray, oh God, that, 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 Lord, there would be within us a desire to learn how to grow in humility. If you honor the humble, if you will raise up the humble, if you will bless the, uh, the humble and exalt them and they will be successful in all of their ways, then, God, our heart's desire is that you would grow humility within each and every one of us. Lord, I know that this is not a message that we would normally hear, but we're diving deep into Galatian. And this is what Paul is saying, enables us to walk by the Spirit. And our desire is to be led by the Spirit. To empty ourselves of everything that would hinder us hearing the voice of the Spirit. To break everything in our life that Father polludes and, and clouds us to knowing what the Spirit desires. To show where the tentacles of carnality have wrapped its tentacles around us. Lord, Paul reveals it to us. And sometimes we've just read over this passage so fast. And we don't even pause to contemplate the works of the flesh. You'll go on to say in Galatians that if we're filled with the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, and if we put on the fruit of the Spirit, God, that's our prayer today, is that you'll continue to fill us with your Spirit. Our prayer is, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, reveal. Holy Spirit, Help us to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. In our life group, as we study how to walk in the Spirit, I pray that you'll give us the will, the determination to do what you've called us to do. And that, Father, we will be a people whose ears are open and attuned to you. Lord, I pray for a spiritual maturity to come over the people of Christian Life Center. That you will grow our faith, grow the roots of our faith. God, we will see miracles. We will see, Father, a mighty move of your spirit. Yes, oh God, we will see the breakthroughs, the deliverance. Yes, God, we will see the healings. Yes, Lord, we will see a city that's turned upside down. God, it comes as your people are led by your spirit. Lord, I pray that we will be the vessels that are filled with your spirit. To be filled with your spirit, these things must be removed. Selfish ambition, impurity, God replacement of idolatry, 
Father, I pray that these things would be removed so that we could be led by you. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Give the Lord praise for a moment. If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.